This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 20. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Now, before we start the show today, I just wanted to give a big thank you to all the listeners out there and for everyone that has left a rating for this podcast over at iTunes. The podcast has actually now been showing up in the What's Hot section constantly here in Canada, and it's all because you've been listening to the episodes and leaving a review. So thank you so much for all your support and feedback. Of course, if you haven't left a review yet, I would greatly appreciate that as well, as it really helps get great experts on the show. All right, so now let's get into this interview. So today I am thrilled to have Peter Hudson on the show, who is the owner of 5 research the canadian money saver magazine and in his investment career has managed over one billion dollars in assets how cool is that all right now i've always wanted to have peter on the show and pick his brain about investing best practices here in canada and see what he learned over his decades and decades of professional investing all right so peter and his team have also been generous in providing build wealth canada listeners with a special offer where you can get your investment questions answered and there are more investment best practices by getting a free trial membership over at 5 i research you can get the special link for the free trial by going to the show notes for this episode over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 20 so just the number 20 all right also while you're there don't forget to sign up for free to the build wealth canada newsletter if you haven't done so already where you'll get exclusive content only available to build wealth canada subscribers plus you get a free gift and be the first to know when we have new giveaways coming out and special offers from the many guests that we have on the show all right i'll see you there and now let's get into the interview all right hey peter welcome to the show Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Peter, maybe to start us off, for those that maybe haven't heard of you or haven't heard of 5 Eye Research, can you tell us your background a little bit, basically telling us your story from your days on Bay Street all the way to now where you're running 5 Eye Research, you own Canadian Money Saver magazine. Can you run us through kind of the, the progression and your background? Sure. I'll give you the short version. So, I've been in the investment business now about 31 years, uh, getting pretty old. And I sort of started off, you know, in the at the bottom of the, the, the heap in terms of the investment industry. And I worked my way up to uh, my last position before 5i was chairman of Sprott Asset Management as the, uh, the largest hedge fund in Canada. So I've done the gamut. I've been a credit analyst, an equity analyst. Um, I was a portfolio manager for about 17 years. And so I sort of I've seen a bunch of crashes, I've seen a bunch of problems, and I've seen a bunch of uh, bad things in the industry. And so I got to a point where I had enough experience and I had enough money that the industry that I had sort of loved, I didn't love anymore. Um, There's a lot of sort of bad things that happen in the business. Um, It's a very, very greedy business. Everybody wants a piece of your money. Um, You've got salespeople selling you things for a commission that may not be right for you. You've got high fees across the land. And I sort of just sat back and I said, you know what, this is really not so good for investors. And so I had 5i kind of in my mind for, for the past few years at, you know, when I was on Bay Street. And I said, well, the only real problem I see is the conflicts of interest. Right. When you've got an analyst telling you to buy something, that analyst is getting paid by the company uh, in the form of financing and deals and things like that. So he's conflicted. Your stock advisor is conflicted because they get paid. Right. Your mutual fund advi- your mutual fund manager is conflicted because he gets paid by you in terms of management fees. And so there's not a single person on Bay Street that's not trying to get your money. 
and that creates all sorts of problems. You just can't be uh, can't have reliability on what what p these people are saying because they're getting paid by somebody else or by you indirectly. And so I thought I would just throw that whole model out and start a company that just gives advice. We don't care if you buy a stock ever. We really don't care. We don't get money from the company. We don't get money from you. We don't get commissions or bonuses. We're just here to give you our advice. And so a lot of our customers say, well, what should I do? And we don't really tell you what to do, but we tell you what we would do. And then you can do that and do whatever you want with that information. And so I really started it almost as a hobby. Um, I didn't want to leave the equity world and the Bay Street world and the investment world. Um, but it's really grown into a business and we hit a nerve with investors because everything they hear, they can't really trust. And right. so we may not be the smartest people on the street, but we, our customers love us because they know that we're not benefiting from anything they do. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we started. Um, I bought Money Saver primarily because it, um, it sort of came up at the right time. And I wanted to sort of provide sort of more detailed information than, than perhaps 5i could do. Money Saver has been a magazine around for 31 years, and it sort of showed up, and we bought it and said, well, here's a, a sort of a complimentary service that we can provide to people. It's it's very, very low, very low priced, um, and, uh, you know, we've got a, a stable of about 72 experts that are providing all sorts of uh, information to investors on that. I don't write for the magazine. I'm the editor, but um, mm -hmm. that doesn't sound as, uh, it's not as busy as it sounds. I mean, basically, <laughs> I just choose which articles go with it. But we're happy the way they're working together, and a lot of our customers uh, are are buying both services. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned a point about the conflict of interest, and I, I know people my age, uh, that seems to be studies have, are showing over and over again how we just basically don't trust anybody <laughs> because you know we hear about these things and we hear about these sort of you know they're getting people are getting commissions on the back end that we don't know about. And I mean, how do you how do you go to someone and ask them what you should invest and in, how to set your retirement up? when you know that what they tell you could be completely based on what their boss is saying, oh, you're going to get a bonus if you push this fund instead of this one. You know, you're going to get, you're going to get this, you might win a trip or something, right? And so, the, yeah, so at that point, you know, you, if you kind of study this long enough, like in my case, I just thought, you know what, I just don't trust these guys at all because I have no clue how, you know, they might not tell me how they're compensated or, or you know, it's, it's just really sketchy to, say, <laughs> to put it one way. And uh, so I'm really, I really like what you guys are doing where it's kind of, okay, let's, let's remove all that. And that's kind of flipped the model on its head a little bit um, so that we don't have that conflict of interest, which seems to be sort of the norm uh, in the industry. That's exactly right. And quite frankly, people don't worry that much about conflicts when the market's going up and they're making 20% right, a year. Right. After 2008, when everybody lost money and the return expectations dropped dramatically, you might only be making 6% now a year if you're lucky. And your manager might be taking two of that. So right. if your manager's now getting one third of your total portfolio return, it suddenly becomes a much bigger problem for investors. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it might sound uh, to someone that's just entering this sort of world, right? It might sound, oh, it's not 2%, it's nothing. It's just 2% that, you know, because they just compare it to, I don't know, well, I'm paying, you know, 13% tax when I buy something. So 2% is nothing, right? But when you consider, well, that could be actually a third of your entire return, uh, that really changes the, <laughs> it kind of changes your perspective on the whole issue for sure. Absolutely. And then, of course, you get the compounding factor yeah. because those fees are based on assets. So as you become more wealthy uh, by, by skill or by luck, uh, you're paying your advisor more. And so there's been a study that shows that over a, a career of investing, say from 30 to 60, 
if you invest even just a moderate amount of money on an annual basis, you might be paying up to four hundred and five hundred thousand dollars a year in fees. <laughs> and of course, that at, when you're sixty-five, half a million dollars might be the difference between an okay retirement and a really good retirement. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I know that's a great point. So. Peter, I kind of I've been you know in this for a bit now and looking at sort of all the different investment strategies out there, and I've kind of narrowed it down to five. It, it seems like Canadians are, you know, they kind of adopt one of these strategies or a combination of them. They're either mutual fund, they, they either when they invest they buy mutual funds, or they're like myself who buy basically indexes, and that's kind of just what we stick to. And then there are those people who are maybe more kind of aligned with Five I, where they buy individual stocks for growth or individual stocks for dividends, right? Or, or, you know, or they buy a combination. Are there any sort of uh, strategies that I missed or are those, would you agree, those are kind of the kind of five main ones? Those are certainly the core. I think in, in Canada, of course, we've got um, perhaps another one where people just like to speculate on, on junior resource companies. Oh, okay. and we're kind of famous in Canada for, for gambling and that sort of approach, but I wouldn't call that an investment strategy. I'd call it a gambling strategy. But yeah, those are the main ones for sure. Gotcha. So when if we're let's say starting off or even if we're not, and you know, we have these these five options, right? Do I do mutual funds? Do I do indexes? Do I pick individual stocks? How how do we decide what's a good fit for us? Well it really a lot depends on your age and a lot depends on how much money you have and a lot depends on how much time you have to devote to your investments. So you know, we at Five I we like to beat up mutual funds as much as we can because of the fee. <laughs> yeah. But they do serve serve a purpose. They have low minimums and instant diversification. So if you're a young person and you you want to start investing, you don't know what stocks you should buy. You don't know which company you're going to buy. You may not be able to buy more than one. And if you buy one company, it doesn't work out. You're going to hate investing forever, and of course that's going to be bad for your financial health. So mm-hmm. mutual mm-hmm. funds are, are not a bad place to start. They usually have a minimum of a thousand or two thousand um, dollars. You get instant diversification where they own a bunch of stocks at the same time, and you can you know contribute fifty dollars a month or something like that. And that's a, not a bad program to have. But after a certain point of time, those fees are going to hurt you, and you can move into an ETF where you get the same amount of diversification at much, much lower fees. The fees can be, you know, you can drop your fee from two and a half percent to half a percent or less. Right. And over 30 years, that's going to turn into a dramatic outperformance in terms of your investments. So certainly those, you know, those are the places to start. Once you've got a certain amount of assets, and it really depends on some of your trading costs and also on what your risk comfort level is, you can start buying individual stocks. But you do need between five and 15 stocks to get any sort of diversification. So a lot of people aren't really comfortable with buying five stocks. They don't know which five stocks to buy, and that's sort of where Five I comes in. We try and help you out with that. Um, but the key, the key really is time in the market, not timing the market. You have to invest for the long term, and diversification. Diversification is is probably the most important thing. You can ride out almost any problem if you're not loaded up on one particular sector or one particular stock. So, really, as you grow, um, certainly you can move out of. Uh, managed products. Uh, we really like ETFs. They, they are, they're great for certain markets. They're great for inst- instant diversifications. And the actual fee structure on ETFs has been going down dramatically. A company called Vanguard is mm-hmm. really, really pushing fees down. And you can get an index product where you're just buying the market now for uh, less than uh, five-tenths of 1%. So it's very, very cheap compared to mutual funds. And over a period of 20 years, there's not a single mutual fund that can outperform the market because of those high fees. So mm-hmm. nothing wrong at all with a market-based ETF. 
Some people want to get a little bit more aggressive with stocks, though. So, I mean, in my case, when I started investing, I just went right for the ETFs. I went right for the broad market indexes through ETFs. Is there any advantage to someone going with mutual funds first before they go in the ETFs? Is it just because they're simpler, I guess, maybe to get into? And so it's kind of like a little, like a baby step, like a starting point before you start kind of feeling comfortable with investing and then you buy ETFs or, you know, or is there something I'm missing? Well, really, there's not that many advantages other than the fact that a lot of, because ETFs trade on the market, mm -hmm. a lot of investors, they're not, you know, if you're just starting out, you're not familiar with how to go about buying something on the market. So you don't need a, um, you know, you don't need a brokerage account to buy a mutual fund. Right. Uh, you can set it up independently. And that, that really is about the only advantage that, that we see. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some trading costs on the ETF, but um, with online trading, um, they're very, very low. And there's a lot of online brokers that will let you buy ETFs for free. That's right. So that's not really a, a you know an advantage to mutual funds anymore. So basically, it's more a comfort level. People know what a mutual fund is, and the average person perhaps doesn't know what an ETF is. Right, right. Yeah, I guess it's much easier to go to your local bank where you do your banking already and just say, okay, I would like to do mutual funds. That's kind of the easiest way, most convenient, I suppose. Uh, least difficult kind of to get your foot in the door. But then also you're going to get destroyed on fees at that point, unfortunately, too. <laughs> That's right. But it's your point is good. I mean, the banks take advantage of this. They there's a comfort level with the customers. Yeah. And it's very, very easy to get that money. They've mm -hmm. been dealing with the same people at the bank for so long. That's a very easy shift into a mutual fund if they're comfortable with the bank. Oh, exactly. Right. And I mean, they have their whole upsell processes already down, right? Where, okay, you've been doing your, you have your personal checking account. Hey, maybe you should look for into your retirement. Here's some literature we can send you. Right. And then the whole process starts. And then before you know it, you're paying two and a half percent. Exactly. Yeah. And, and anytime I'm in the bank and I actually haven't happened to have a balance of more than a thousand dollars or so, they always ask me if I want. <laughs> I just try and roll my eyes at that. <laughs> and they don't know who you are, right? So like, <laughs> it's like you could probably go on like a thirty-minute rant as to why this is a bad idea. But exactly. <laughs> that's funny. So okay, so would you say then that I guess the the indexes would be, or like let's say doing indexes through ETFs, that's kind of that could be a good starting point um, if you can get past that learning curve. Um, and then you're saying once you have a solid base of that then maybe you want to start uh, considering doing individual stocks and, and using some other research that 5i puts together. Is that kind of the, the progress you would recommend? Yeah, that, that's absolutely it. Certainly the ETFs are a great place to start. And then um, there's nothing wrong with keeping ETFs as well. And so what we've suggested to a lot of our clients is um, once you're at a certain level, have a market-based ETF. So you're always getting a market return for that. Mm -hmm. And then you can layer in the stocks that, that you like or the sectors that you like with individual securities positions. So there is a still an advantage over a portfolio of stocks over ETFs because the ETFs still do charge fees. Um, but what we really like about a stock portfolio is you don't have to have what the ETF owns. Of course, if you're um, an index ETF, you have to own all the companies in the index by default, and that's what the ETF owns. Now, I don't know if you know, you know, the you're not that old, but Nortel was in the index once and right. it went bankrupt, and Briex was in the index once and it was a scam. So. One of the advantages over an ETF on a portfolio of stocks is you don't have to own stocks you don't want to own. And um, so if you try and high grade the, the portfolio, you know, there is a chance that you can do better than the market if, if you choose the right stocks as well. Okay. Okay. And then what about uh, dividends? Because I know with 5i, you guys, you have a growth uh, portfolio 
and you also have a dividend or a, a, an income portfolio, I believe you call it. So you right. know, when do you shift to that sort of strategy? Well, a lot, again, depends on your personal needs. A lot of people like the income from dividends and a lot of people like the generally if a company's paying dividends it's a more conservative company and perhaps a little bit less volatile in the stock market and investors like that gotcha but the um they've proven over over centuries now that the best performing investments are companies that raise their dividends so a lot of people get excited by about a a seven percent dividend they think that's great we think you should get more excited by a one percent dividend that has the potential to grow because your income will grow and as the dividend grows, your stock price will go will grow as well. So certainly we think everyone should have a mix. There's nothing wrong with a, a high growth company that invests all their money back in the business and keeps growing at a rapid rate. But um, if you're a company paying out a dividend, then the discipline that that creates for management, they have to come up with that money every quarter to pay you the shareholders. Mm-hmm. That really creates um, you know a, a backdrop of stability for that business. Mm-hmm. And we really, really like companies that are growing dividends far more than companies that have high dividends. So a little bit of both is best. Gotcha. And so when is there a particular good time to make the leap? Like, let's say, you know, you're you're invested in broad market ETFs. You've got an I mean, what what's kind of a good base would you recommend before you say, OK, you know what? Let's maybe try a little bit in, into individual stocks. Let's let's you know, let's kind of go into that sandbox a little bit. You know, wh- when would you say is a good sort of time to, to potentially? to at least start considering moving kind of to that next uh, step? Well, the, uh, the, there's a saying that says the best time to invest in a stock was uh, the day you were born, <laughs> and the second best time is today. So okay. gotcha. <laughs> certainly there's that time in the market. But I think in terms of actual money, like the younger you are, the, the more aggressive you can be with stocks. I think you need about fifteen dollars to $20,000 so you can at least set up a portfolio of five or six stocks if you're doing it on an individual basis where you can get some diversification right in. Gotcha. Uh, and so that's generally a good time. The TFSA, of course, is likely the best place to start these days if you're uh, of a certain age. I mean, it's got huge advantages over an RSP in terms of what you can do and uh, the restrictions and you can put money back in and things like that. You don't actually need a job to to earn income to have a TFSA as well. So if you have a a friendly parent, they can fund it for you as well. And you can get off to the bat and, you know, start investing at a very young age. And of course, if you don't have to pay taxes ever on that account, then you're at a huge advantage. So the sooner the better. But um, again, a lot depends on how much money you've got. Gotcha. So Peter, I wanted to really dive deep about 5i and what you guys do and sort of how we can implement what you guys uh, teach there and all the research you do. But before we get into that, can you maybe just share with us some sort of key investing lessons that you've learned over the years? So when you were managing, um, you said it was that Sprout Asset Management, right? Um, What was the, the size of the basically portfolio that you were managing? Uh, it, it peaked at 400 million. Okay. The one, just the one that I was running, yeah. um, I, one of my other companies, I had one that was one and a half billion, uh, <laughs> but it's actually, you know, those are impressive numbers, but if you're a fund manager, you'd much rather manage a small amount of money. Okay. Um, a small amount of money is easier to manipulate in terms of what you can buy. You've got a better, uh, selection of terms. You can buy smaller companies, which can do well, and you're not restricted by, you know, there's no market impact. If you want to buy lots of a company and you don't have that much money it's you you can do it but if you have 10 billion dollars and you want to buy a lot of a company you're going to push up the price while you start to buy so um so certainly in terms of lessons um one of my biggest uh things that i like to uh sort of preach on is 
is you just don't have to panic. A lot of people, especially the way the internet has developed, and this has been interesting for me because I started in the business, of course, pre-internet, and the amount of information out there that's available to anyone is just ridiculous, but it's not all very useful. And so a lot of people will sort of panic. They'll say, oh, I heard this about this company. I heard that about that company. And we just kind of calm people down and and tell them that somebody somewhere sold Apple Inc. at $7 because they thought Apple was going out of business in the 70s. And, um, you know, there's always another side of the story. And if you look around, you can find a negative story on absolutely everything. Every single stock that's ever gone up and doubled and tripled and quadrupled, somebody sold that stock at a low price because they thought it was a loser at a garbage company. And so somebody sold Google at $80 and somebody sold Priceline at $14 and now it's over $1,000. Um, you just have to take a look and say, okay, what's really changed here? The fact that somebody on TV has said something bad about your company does not make it a bad company. And so so many people are kind of forgetting about the forest and they're looking at the little individual trees that uh, we really try and get them focused on the long term again. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies will, you know, they'll miss a quarter, they'll miss a quarterly report. And we sort of calm people down and say, you're investing for 10 years. So it's 3,600 days approximately. Why do you need to worry about a 90-day, three-month window? It means absolutely nothing if you're a real investor. Mm -hmm. um, you have to watch the trends, but the actual quarterly report itself is completely irrelevant if you've got a 10-year time frame. So that's important. We've seen a lot of people gamble. Um, once I had a, a mutual fund that I was running that was very, very aggressive. It was called the Extreme Fund, and we were sort of paid to gamble, which was kind of fun. <laughs> but for a true investor, you don't want to gamble. Give you know, It's better to buy a... $2 company on the way to $20 than to buy a 10 cent company hoping it gets to $2 because very, very few of them are, are successful. So we like to wait until a company's had some success before we sort of back it and recommend it. Mm -hmm. We don't like buying the micro caps and the startup companies and companies always run into trouble. And it doesn't matter if you've got the greatest thing in the world. If you can't fund your company, it's not going to be a, a good investment. And so that's very, very important. And then the, the greed and fear factor is unbelievable. I mean, it's just a psychology lesson every day in the markets. You get people who are very, very greedy doing the wrong things, and you get people who are very, very scared, and they do the wrong things. And um, you just have to balance those emotions in the, in the market. So put in your time, diversify, don't get greedy, don't be stupid. I mean, it's, it, it sounds easy, but it's not because there's so many emotions involved. For sure. Yeah, when the heart rate starts racing a little bit and <laughs> and that starts to dictate the decisions, it takes some discipline to to hold that back, right? And especially yeah. in the bad times when everybody's selling and all you hear about is how bad the market is, um, you, the tendency to sell and the the desire and the drive to sell and join the crowd is very very strong. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, all the smart money is going the other way and buying. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, the, the, just the counterintuitive thing. It's surprising how often. That actually tends to work. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, Peter, let's talk about, thank you for sharing those. Let's talk about 5i research a bit. So, we, we've kind of already touched on it a little bit, but I just want to make sure for anybody that's never heard of 5i, have no clue what you guys do, other than it has something to do with stocks. Can you sort of start at the ground floor? Uh, you know, what is it that you do? What do you offer? How do you help Canadian investors? Sure. There's, so, there's really three, um, three services we offer. And the, the key that I mentioned before is, we, we have no conflicts. We're not associated with any company, broker, bank, mutual fund, or anything like that. We're completely independent. Um, but our three services are we give individual stock reports on about 80 companies, 
And these are companies that we like and we generally recommend, although we're not recommending all of them right now. We use a high school rating system, A, B, C, D, E, F. Um, so if you have an interest in a company, we might have a re research report on it and we can tell you all about it. And we've had some very good success with some mid-cap and smaller companies that have done well. So that's the first service. The second service is we have a uh, question and answer service where we've now answered almost 33,000 investment questions for investors. And it's interesting because people love this service because we don't trade in stocks and we don't deal with companies and we don't manage money. We don't have a compliance department. We don't have to check with our lawyers to see if we can answer a question because there's no conflicts. And so we can answer your questions pretty fast, generally within 24 hours. And again, we'll give you an opinion. Um, we can't say, you know, this is what you should do. You should buy 10 shares of this and eight shares of this. But we can tell you that maybe 15% of one stock is too much and you're betting your portfolio on that company and maybe you should consider taking it down. So the question service is very popular. And then we have a portfolio service where we offer three separate portfolios. We've got a growth portfolio, a balance portfolio, and an income portfolio. And that's for those people that, again, they want a little bit more hand-holding. They want to be told what to do. Um, but again, we're not telling you what to do, but we've put out a portfolio of uh, 20 stocks or 21 stocks and saying, these are sort of the top ones that we would choose if we wanted to have an income portfolio. And these are the top ones we would choose if we wanted to have a growth portfolio. And then we have some people that have followed those religiously. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's it's up to it's up to them and the investor what they do. We just sort of give you what we think is a good list of twenty stocks, so you don't have to, you know, troll through the eighty stocks that we cover. Gotcha. So you actually look into every single what you analyze every single one of those stocks in each of those portfolios, and you make sure that okay, this is some a company that we feel comfortable with investing for the long term. Yes, yes and no. There's a couple of stocks that we don't follow in the portfolios. Mm -hmm. um, in one portfolio, we had to add a, a couple of larger cap companies just for balance and diversification. Okay. And, and in the growth portfolio, we fully intend to cover all those companies, but because we added 20 high growth companies at once, we just didn't have 20 re research reports ready to go at once, but they'll come over time. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so, oh yeah, and, and how have these portfolio has been performing compared to the index is I'm sure something many people want to know. <laughs> yeah, well, we're in our, the first one was our balanced equity, which we started three years ago. And so in, um, in 2013, we went up 35%. The index was up, I think, eight or nine. Uh, in 2014, we went up 29% and that was way, way, way ahead of the index. And then in 2015, we're up about 9% and the index is about flat. So people are pretty happy with the portfolio so far. Uh, the growth portfolio was just started this year, so it's a little too early to, to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And the income portfolio was up about 8% in its first year to April. So um, that's kind of where we wanted to uh, to run it. We've been fortunate in the fact that we haven't had any disasters. When you're an investor, there's usually, you know, if you have 20 stocks, there's usually one that's a big, giant problem. But we've managed to avoid the big, giant problem so far. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So, so that we're happy with Okay. Yeah. So, and then how do you, so, so you mentioned the income portfolios more, I guess, if you're more of a conservative investor, uh, maybe you're, I guess, in retirement or so. And so that's kind of what you would potentially follow. Is that correct? That That's absolutely right. Yep. And so we don't follow bonds at 5i. And so we've got some bond ETFs in there to sort of make sure you've got a diversified portfolio. Mm -hmm. And the stocks that we've got in there tend to be you know, very high conservative stocks with consistent dividends and stocks we're not particularly worried about. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of um, smaller mm -hmm. companies in that portfolio, but they're not micro caps. 
and they're companies that um, that pay high dividends, but they have no debt. And so their stock may be a little bit more volatile than, say, you know, BCE or something like that. But there's one company in there that's sitting on $105 million in cash. There's no problem with the dividend. The stock may bounce up and down, but the dividend is going to keep getting paid. So mm-hmm. we, need, we need a little bit of those to sort of boost the income a little bit. We're targeting 6 to 8% in terms of annual returns. Okay. Um, and you need a couple of high dividend payers in there to help that out. Okay. And then what about the growth portfolio versus balanced portfolio? How do we decide which one we go, go to? Like I'm guessing if we're young and we're looking for sort of more, I mean, how, I guess how aggressive is it is, is the question. <laughs> so the growth portfolio, there are, there are a couple of larger companies in there, but the average market cap is fairly low. The stocks we would consider, again, in the Canadian investor landscape, we would consider them fairly aggressive mm-hmm. um, in terms of their growth potential. But we've also been careful to make sure, again, that they're companies that are not highly speculative. So there's a difference that we we like to point out between volatility and risk. So volatility, most people consider that risky. Volatility, of course, is how much the stock goes up and down. But we look really at financial risk. And so your stock may bounce around like a yo-yo, but if you're a solid company generating cash and you've got cash on the balance sheet and you don't have any debt, your fundamental risk is different than your stock risk. Here's a company that's not going to go out of business. Your stock may go from 10 to 8 to 6, back to 12 and back to 6, but the business itself is solid. So we've tried to put those types of companies in where your stock might be risky, but your fundamental company is not risky. So these are more aggressive, but not super aggressive um, companies that we have a high degree of faith in that they're going to grow. Each individual stock on their own, we would consider pretty risky, but that's why we have 21 or 22 in there to, to balance that risk. Um, but there's some, we have a company called Alimentation Card in there and it's a company that operates convenience stores, and it's a $4 billion company. Um, I think it's actually more than $4 billion right now, but it's one of the situations where here's a company that's been around, it's growing, it's growing, growing very, very fast, um, and that would probably be our safest one in the group. We can overlay that with a biotechnology company that it's a billion-dollar company, but it doesn't have that much in revenue right now, and so um, you know they need to build into that valuation, but their technology is very, very robust. It's been added to the TSX index, and it's got a great growth profile. But if you looked at it and said, well, where are the revenues? They're not quite there yet. And so um, that'd be a little bit different than selling candy bars at a convenience store type of company. Right, right. Okay. And then your balanced portfolio would be sort of the middle ground where, um, I guess, more so for kind of the average investor that's maybe doesn't want that extra, that level of volatility, but also doesn't want to be all that conservative with the income uh, portfolio. Is that, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. That, that you've nailed it on that one. Okay. Okay, great. Um, so uh, let's say with, okay. So somebody like myself that just is a pure index investor at this point, um, what I guess is the incentive to uh, well, maybe not switch over wouldn't be the right term, but to start now also investing in individual stocks, doing what five I recommend. So I'm guessing you know there's the potential higher returns as you've already mentioned. Are there any other advantages um, on top of that? Uh, like for example, one that comes to mind is with the Canada's not very diversified in terms of its different sectors, right? It's different industries. So when you build your portfolios, is that kind of something that you? take care of a little bit better to be more diversified among different industries or, or yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get a good handle as to what are the advantages other than the potential for higher returns. Sure. Certainly the, the return side is there. And of course the fee side is, is part of the return equation. Mm-hmm. If you have a portfolio of 20 stocks, 
other than your your purchase decision and your purchase cost, you'll never pay a management fee again. And so we kind of like that for sure, especially if you're owning something for 20 years. If you cost you $10 to buy a stock and you never pay a single cent more for 20 years, it's not a bad uh, type of business, at least in terms of the cost of that ownership. But probably um, the index comparison is the is the best advantage. So with an ETF that's a market ETF, of course, it has to own the index. But most investors probably aren't aware that almost all mutual funds in Canada buy the same stocks. Um, when I was a mutual fund manager, my boss would always come by and say, how are you doing compared to the index? And if I was behind the index, that was bad. And if I was ahead of the index, that was good. But because of that, most managers in Canada tend to buy the stocks in the index. And their, <laughs> their big decision of their life or their career might be, do I have 6% in Royal Bank or do I have 5% in Royal Bank? Because, of course, if Royal Bank does well, you want 6%. And if it doesn't do well, you want 5%. So the other problem, of course, is index-related is the fact that Canada is a land of financial companies and resource companies. And so we saw that over the past year when the TSX index was 26% energy. And people were owning mutual funds that they viewed as conservative market-based mutual funds that were going down you know, dramatically because of that energy exposure. And so with our five I portfolios, we've taken a better view, we think, in terms of diversification. Just because the index is 26% energy, that in no way means that you, your investment should be 26% energy in your portfolio. So you know, we've got a very small energy component uh, in our portfolios. We have a very small gold component. We have them only really for diversification, but to bet a quarter of your portfolio on energy stocks, we just think is ridiculous. And who cares what the index is doing? This is not, you know, you're not the index. You've got real life goals and real life investment needs. And so that's the biggest advantage is mm -hmm. in addition to a more concentrated portfolio should get you better returns. Uh, not guaranteed, of course, but um, should get you better returns, no fees and no index uh, bias, really. Right. Okay, that's great. And then for somebody that, I mean, one of the big kind of draws, well, why I just love investing in indexes is because it's very, it, it doesn't take a lot of work to do, right? Like I don't want to be reading financial statements, um, analyzing companies on a one-by-one -one basis to figure out whether they're, whether they're a good fit before I buy and then continuing to research them after the fact to make sure that they're still a good company, that nothing critical has changed, that it's still a good investment and I should keep it. So, you know, for, for investors that kind of are similar to myself where, you know, we just don't want to be investing time analyzing companies, you know, maybe we're busy with career or children or, or you know, it's just not something we want to focus on. Is 5i still a good fit for an investor like that? Well, I mean, I don't want to do a sales pitch, but certainly <laughs> uh, in, in our in our question database, we get questions on ETFs all the time. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the big uh, confusion areas for investors is um, what's the difference between this ETF and that ETF? And, and with the databases that we have, mm -hmm. we, can, we can answer that question really, really easy in terms of uh, fees, performance, portfolio holdings, and things like that. We also get a lot of questions on um, sector allocation. We'll get, you know, whether it's a young person or an old person, they'll say, you know, what percent do you think I should have in energy or in financials and things like that? And we can suggest ETFs that would sort of match their allocation that based on their age and their income and things like that. So yeah, in terms of the actual reports, we don't, we don't do formal reports on ETFs, so we can't help you on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can help you on sort of individual uh, questions on ETFs. Gotcha. And then, but if, if someone like myself wants to be a passive investor, but wants to invest a little bit in, into individual stocks as well, would I be okay just going ahead with 
just with your model portfolio basically and just follow that along and then just make sure I rebalance periodically to make sure that kind of I'm you know my allocation is the same as your portfolio basically would that be I guess enough work or would I recall where I also sort of is the expectation that I'm also researching this companies on the side too to make sure that they're still a good investments etc no, generally, I mean, we're we're we put our stamp of approval on the portfolios, and we watching it. We watch it very, very closely, mm-hmm. and we do make changes, and we let our customers know of any of those changes. Um, because we chose carefully, we haven't actually made that many changes over the past three years. We've we've kicked a few companies out, and we've moved a few in. Mm-hmm. But certainly, that would be enough if you wanted to have a, a passive portfolio. You kind of let somebody else do the work, and generally. Um, you know, I don't want to undersell us either, but if you choose a diverse portfolio of 20 stocks, you're probably going to beat most mutual funds anyway um, because of that fee drag. And so right. the, key, the key is keeping your sector allocations proper. And when a company does well, you do have to, you know, reallocate from, uh, from the one that's performing well to the one that's not performing well. You don't want to get a situation. And we've actually had this. We've had a couple of big, big winners. Um, and we've had a stock that sort of went from 5% of the portfolio to 10%. <laughs> We had, to, we had to sell it back down to five to keep the risk level in line. And then it went back up to 10% of the portfolio because it just kept going up so fast. Oh, okay. So that, you know, that's a good problem to have, but it's also important because if we didn't do that, we'd end up with one company representing 20% of the portfolio. And suddenly we don't have a portfolio. We have a bet on one company. And gotcha. so for someone more passively, that would be the biggest concern is just to mm-hmm. make sure that um, – that they still have a portfolio and not an individual stock bet. <laughs> gotcha. So for somebody that is a passive investor uh, that wants to continue be a passive investor, the 5i portfolio can still be a good fit for them. They just have to make sure that you have to make sure you rebalance basically that you're watching your allocations as the stocks fluctuate as you're investing more into the portfolio. Uh but yeah, that was kind of my main question as well. If I want to still be a passive investor, can I still take advantage of your portfolios or is that kind of not or am i kind of playing with fire at that point no i mean you can you absolutely can and the amount of trading you would do would be would be quite minimal i mean we when we make a change we send out an email to our customers saying you know we've made a change and often it's like we'll take xyz company from six percent to five percent it doesn't mean it's a bad company but this is what we do from a portfolio management standpoint Mm -hmm. so there's degrees of passive passiveness right be if you if you wanted to follow us exactly, you'd have to go out and sell a little bit of that stock. Um, but you're not required to if you if you still like it. Maybe you've got some more money coming in that that's not going to be a problem if as the the weighting goes down with the new money. So certainly you you might be expected to do five or six trades a year, um, but that's pretty passive if you know if you're not doing any homework on it, you don't have to really worry about much. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. And then the portfolios as well, are they only for Canadian? They're only for Canadian companies, right? We only follow Canadian companies. Mm-hmm. In, in a couple of the portfolios, we have some uh, US and foreign ETFs mm-hmm. uh, just for diversification. Again, because if people are want to follow a passive strategy, the last thing they want to do is go investigate uh, international stocks. Right, and we, and we agree with that. We you know we've got a very narrow focus in Canada. We're not going to tell you what companies to buy in Europe. We have no idea, mm-hmm. but we can tell you which European ETFs we think are good versus which ones are bad. And so we've layered in a couple of those, um, and that's sort of for the for the one stop shopping type of investor where they want to have a fully diversified portfolio right off the bat. Um, but we recognize that a lot of investors have other things as well. 
Um, and so this is, it does have to be, you know, you have to be involved a little bit. If you, if you have a bunch of European stocks already, we certainly don't want to tell you to buy ETF because you've already got exposure to that market. So mm -hmm. um, we will offer that as part of our portfolios as well. Gotcha. And then um, because you're also, you want to diversify, you're investing in international companies as well outside of Canada. What sort of allocation would you, do you recommend for that? Yeah, it's a very tough question, of course, because everybody's different. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing any traveling, um, you know, you may want some more international exposure, but just on average, if we look at sort of the average uh, customer that we've got in terms of their age, their income, et cetera, et cetera, we've been going 70% Canada, 20% US and 10% international, just as a general guideline. Mm -hmm. um, and we do believe in currency diversification as well. One of our most popular questions is, should I buy a hedged product or an unhedged product versus the Canadian dollar exposure? Mm -hmm. And we think you're trying to guess which currency is going to do well is just almost an impossible task. Right. Um, if you're going to go international, either U.S. or, or full international, you want to have that diversification of the currency as well. Some years it'll be good, some years it'll be bad. But over a 20-year period, you're not going to be able to go back and forth uh, successfully between the currencies. So just take those markets for what they're worth. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, different markets, different diversification, not correlated to Canada, um, and with some with much higher growth potentials than Canada as well. So those are the advantages. Sure, you have to take on currency risk as a disadvantage, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. also uh, diversification as well. So it's not as bad as people think. So 70-20-10, if you just came came in our door and said, what do you think? We'd probably go there. Okay, okay. And then you're saying stick with the unhedged as well. Just to yeah. for that to maximize that diversification. So and that those numbers are a bit different than sort of what a lot of other uh, people say. I, I would say in the industry, right? Like if you read a lot of the different sort of books and and all the main bloggers in Canada, like the common sort of uh, numbers that get thrown around is a third in a third into Canadian, a third into U.S., and a third you know international, excluding U.S. Um, so why such a what's the logic behind such a much higher um, Canadian allocation? Well, I think the, the one comment I should make first, I think those comments are probably related to the fact that the Canadian market is dominated by financials and resources. Oh, okay. So okay. I think so, but we're a little different. As we mentioned, our portfolios are not dominated by financials and resources. Right. So I think if you were dominated by financials and resources, that would be a better, a better mix, a third, a third, a third. But I think really the main thing is the, the volatility of the international market is extreme. Um, and to have 30% in outside North America, I think the average investor doing it themselves or otherwise um, might have a problem with the volatility on that side. They might have a third of their portfolio go down 30% in one year in a bad year. And so suddenly you've lost 9% of your entire portfolio uh, because of that international call. So, you know, you have to look at the individual on a, on a one-off basis, but that is a pretty volatile portion of the portfolio. And then even though we like currency diversification, there is that currency risk. If the ma majority of your expenses are in Canada, we don't think you should have 66% of your assets outside of Canada because if the Canadian dollar moves against you, um, you know you could lose a significant amount of money just by currency movements alone. So um, I don't have a problem with a third, a third, a third if, uh, if it's done properly, mm -hmm. but it has to be for the right investor who understands uh, the other risks as well. Gotcha. Okay. So then with the 5i portfolio, then would you recommend basically using that as sort of the Canadian portion of your portfolio? And then you would use ETFs for to get some U.S. exposure and some other international exposure. Would that be sort of the uh, be the recommendation you would make? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Except for the uh, except for the income portfolio where we've already covered the uh, international exposure, mm -hmm. but certainly for the balanced equity and the growth, those those can be part of the core Canadian portfolio and use ETFs elsewhere. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, that sounds good. And then another question I had is that with ETFs, so right now they can be purchased for free through a few uh, discount brokerages, right? So the the cost is really really low because uh, well, you you really only pay it when you sell, right? Um, That's right. For the most part, um, whereas with Five I or not Five I with with buying stocks, you know, if we kind of take the Five I approach, you now have to be paying the you are now paying these transaction costs, right, for every single stock that you buy. Um, so. If somebody, let's say, says, okay, I'm able to invest I don't know, a certain amount every month, you know, percentage of my paycheck, right? Um, and I want to put it in the 5i portfolio. How do you execute that properly? So that, because if you do it wrong, you're going to be paying all this money in transaction costs. And if, you know, you're not going to have a hundred grand to invest all in one swoop, right? So you also want to make sure you're diversified throughout the whole process, as opposed to buying just a few stocks. And then now, you know, you're exposing yourself to all this risk. So, you know, I, I guess to summarize the question, it's, you know, if I want to implement the 5i portfolio and I have a set amount that I can invest every month, how do I do so in an efficient and cost-effective manner? Yeah, this is where it's, you know, doing it yourself is a little bit different than ETFs. And so if you're putting in $50 a month, we wouldn't recommend trying to split that up amongst any stocks at all. I mean, the, the cost would be too high. So certainly you need a little bit of a, a starting point. When we recommend that people start with our portfolio, we tell them not to do all 20 stocks at once. You sort of have to start accumulating them over time to keep those transaction costs low. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Generally, we're okay with a 1% transaction cost. So if, you're, um, if your fee for trading is $10, um, you, know, you can go up to $1,000 in individual stocks. And if you own that for 20 years, then your fee on that 20-year uh, investment after that $10 charge is amortized over 20 years is very, very low. So we're fine with that. So to get a full portfolio, you'd need $20,000 of $1,000 each in terms of stocks. A lot of people even think that's too much, and they start off with five or six stocks. And again, much depends on whether you think you have more money coming in. If if you're starting with seven or $8,000 and you don't think any more money is coming in, we wouldn't recommend our strategy at all. We would just go straight to an ETF. You'll get instant diversification. You won't pay any fees uh, to buy. Mm -hmm. And if you choose right, you'll have pretty low fees you know, for the life of your investments. But Generally, and I'm you know making some big assumptions here. Generally, most people expect to be contributing more over time, right? And so there's not a huge rush to do it all all at once. Mm -hmm. um, they have shown there's been many many academic studies have shown that uh, a lump sum is better to invest right away than to spread it out over time. But we've discovered from 30 years of investing that it's too hard for people to do psychologically. So say you had an inheritance of a hundred thousand dollars. You have a choice of spreading that out over a year or putting it all in tomorrow. Um, the The math says that you should put it all in tomorrow. But what happens is if you put it all in tomorrow and it goes down, then suddenly you've been turned off investments forever. And right. you're, less, you're less likely to buy on dips um, because you have no money left. And it's really just not a good exercise for investors. So we'd rather spread that out over time. And what we found that does is it changes the psychology of you as an investor. So say you're putting in 10000 a month for 10, 10 months. Suddenly you want the market to go down. And that is so liberating for, a, for an investor of any age where they don't care if the market goes down. And in fact, they like it if it goes down. It's just an absolute brilliant uh, mindset to put yourself into. 
because of course it makes sense. If you're buying, you want the market to go down. You don't want it to go up. And so we think the the one or 2% that you get extra by putting it in all at once, mm-hmm. it's more than offset by sort of doing the right things and putting yourself in the right frame of mind for 20 years. So we think it's a good, it's a good exercise and it's a, a decent cost to pay to to set yourself up for the long term. For sure. I, I can see that not being that good for the heart either if you invest it all at <laughs> once and then there's that sudden drop, right? And then now you're every day, I mean, tr- try not logging in every single day to see how you're, like if you had a $100,000 windfall and you just threw all that in all at once and then all of a sudden there's a dip. I mean, good luck not checking that every multiple times a day, stressing it out. It's probably always top of mind. You know, even though you know that okay, you know that it could recover. It's uh, yeah, I, I can I can see that psychologically that could be very difficult to pill to swallow for sure. It really is, and yeah. you get also a situation where we've seen so many investors say, you know, I've taken a hit, but I'll sell when I break even, and we just sort oh, of. Yeah. Yeah. We just want to shake them and we go breaking even is not an investment strategy. Like <laughs> throw that out the window. It's a bad strategy to break even. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Then they're just watching it very closely. Like, oh, come on a few more points, you know, just, exactly. and then so I can finally sell. Right. Whereas they could be exactly. investing that money in a stock that I, just cut your losses and invest in a stock that actually is, does have the potential to, to, to grow substantially. Yeah. Right. And that makes right. a lot of sense. So, uh, so for somebody that wants to start, like you mentioned, okay, you could start with just six, uh, stocks, for example, and purchase more and more as time goes on. Um, how do you know which six to pick from your portfolio? Well, this is where our, our questions come in. And so our customers will ask that specific question and we'll say, okay. you know, as, as of today, we think these six are looking good based on their past results or what their stocks have done. And okay. uh, it much depends on what's occurring with the company in the market. But certainly there's always, we always have our favorites of the 20. Gotcha. Uh, and But we always point out that uh, when you pick just one or two, it's not the same as picking 20. And, you know, if they don't work out, it's part of the part of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay, so then, yeah, so the process would be you ask on the forums, uh, on, on your questions after, you, I guess, you log in, right? You get access to these and you're able to, gotcha. and then you say, okay, well, what, you know, I have X amount to invest. What are the six I should go for right now? And then, you know, how every month I'm going to have this much more to invest, you know, just percentage from my salary, let's say. So what should I kind of, what, what should my hit list be? So for the next, let's say, I don't know, five months, what should I be buying, right? Uh, yeah, based on the current exactly. situation. And then you're saying that answer can change depending on what's, what's happening. And so you, you would want to basically ask that question before you just pull the trigger, essentially. That's, that's right. Okay, Absolutely. gotcha. Okay, that's great. That's great. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of the interview with Peter. Remember to go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash 20, so just the number 20, for your free gift from 5i Research, where you can get the free trial and get more of your investment questions answered by Peter and his team. Also, while you're there, don't forget to sign up to the Build Wealth Canada newsletter if you haven't done so already to get another free gift from me and be informed when we have new giveaways for you and exclusive content only available to Build Wealth Canada subscribers. All right, thanks for listening and see you over at buildwealthcanada.ca to let me know what you thought of this episode. All right, have a great week and stay tuned for part two of the interview with Peter. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.